Hi, I'm Anthony Cimolino, the Artistic Director of the Stratford Festival, and you're listening to Director's Notes. Enter the creative psyches of this season's directors with Stratfest at Home's latest original podcast. Explore the artistic vision and tireless work behind each production through the eyes of the people who bring the festival's productions to life. This intimate look at our season's plays are the perfect pre-show warm-up and post-show reflection. We wish to honor the ancestral guardians of this land and its waterways, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Etiwanderong. Today, many Indigenous peoples continue to call this land home and act as its stewards. And this responsibility extends to all peoples to share and care for this land for generations to come. Whether you've already seen the production or you're currently en route, we thank you for listening in. We hope you enjoy. My name is Andrew Kushner and I'm the director of Casey and Diana. I'm a Toronto-based director and playwright and activist, and this is the pre-show. Premiering a new work is a distinct pleasure. Nobody has heard this story before. You know, we're not building off of some other production or some other iteration. Audiences coming to see Casey and Diana are meeting a story for the very first time. And this has been years in the making. I've been working alongside Nick Green, who's the beautiful playwright of this play, a dear friend of mine and colleague. We got matched up very early on in the process. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes, you know, a play goes through a kind of development period and the festival is so good at that, creating, you know, these new stories. And then a director is attached sort of in the last phase. But I got attached very early on after the first draft. And that's courtesy of and thanks to Bob White, who was running new play development here at the festival, he saw kinship between me and Nick. And he thought, maybe these two are the right pair to see this story through. And so over the pandemic, we did a lot of Zoom workshops, actually, which are, on the one hand, very useful, because you can hear the story, you know, you've got actors, we know the Zoom room, you, you, you've got actors sort of embodying the script to the best of their ability, um, you know, with cats running over their laps and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the chaos of that, but it still can be really useful. And then we had a few in-persons once it was safe to do so. And in fact, in the normal school here, just right, right by the festival theater and to be in an acoustic experience, to return to a live engagement with the play, I cannot tell you what that did for us. You know, we, we, fundamentally understood how the play worked and particularly the silences of the play, which I think are quite powerful. You, you really can only understand silence in person. Silence over Zoom sounds like dead air. Silence over the radio sounds like dead air. In a podcast, it's dead air. But silence in the theater is extraordinary. It's, I mean, I go to the theater for moments of profound silence. And I'm excited for audiences to experience there are a few specific moments of silence in Casey and Diana that I think are very much reflective of that hospice world. For those that know the studio theater, it's a very, very intimate space. And so we wanted to capitalize on that. The play is set in Casey House, which is Canada's first freestanding AIDS hospice. It was opened in 1988, uh, founded by June Colwood, the amazing Canadian journalist June Colwood and a bunch of her uh, cohort. 
uh, her, her colleagues. And um, the idea was we wanted people to walk into Casey House. There's usually a stage that, that's sort of a separation uh, between the story and the audience. And with the incredible team here at the festival, what we've done is we've raised the gutter, we call it, around that stage. So basically you walk in and you're on the set. You walk into the set and you walk into our Casey house. And I worked with designer Josh Quinlan on this, and this was very, very important for me. The idea of immersing an audience in this story, this historic story, and not making it a voyeuristic experience, not making people feel like they were peering in on the residents of Casey house and this visit that uh, Princess Diana uh, paid them. Um, I wanted it to feel as though we were bedside with these men, with these volunteers and nurses, and what it what would it mean to actually um, be present for the visit of visit of a princess, the most one of the most famous women in the world. I think the most lasting artifacts around Diana's destigmatizing of AIDS, her making physical contact with AIDS patients, AIDS residents in hospices. Um, and she did this for the first time in 1987 in London uh, at a hospital in an AIDS ward. And this was very surprising to the world. Those photographs were an absolute watershed moment. But she made headlines again in 1991 and this time in Canada doing the same thing at Casey House. And I think what is so singular, can something be so singular? What is singular? <laughs> What is singular about Casey and Diana as a play is that, of course, you can engage with those photographs as artifacts and you can read McLean's articles about it. You can, you know, you can do a Google search on this. But can you be in a space and experience it in a three dimensional way with actors embodying that extraordinary moment of compassion? I mean, it's always been our dream that an audience member would feel as, as if they were there that day. And so I relish the idea of animating and activating that photograph. You know, what, what would that have looked like? What would that have felt like? What does it look like to you? How does it feel to be witness to that moment of compassion? And so that's, I mean, that's the theater's magic. You can't do that in any other art form that we get to actually witness something in the flesh. And I hope that we've done right by her ghost, <laughs> by her as, a, as, an, as an ancestor of, of sorts. Um, I hope we've done right by these, these gay men that we're representing that, you know, aren't, aren't a part of our world anymore, but have definitely left a trace. Um, and as I've said before, the caregivers, the, the volunteers and nurses that transcended their fear and just found it utterly unacceptable that gay men at the time and others that were languishing from AIDS, that they were suffering horrific ends. It's a hard death to begin with, but the idea that it's compounded by a social death where you're utterly untouched. You know, we spoke to one of the bereavement team members and his wife, Ricardo and Kim, and they told the story of seeing a friend of theirs in an AIDS ward in a Toronto hospital and how there were all this signage on the door. You've got to don basically a hazmat suit to go into this room. 
the patient's food was in the hallway because hospital workers refused to bring food to his bedside. They were too scared to get close to him. They walked into this room and all the furniture had been pushed back to the walls. Every indication had been made to this person perishing of AIDS that they were alien and that they were not deserving of a humane end. And so that, of course, motivated Kim and Ricardo. They said, this is unacceptable. Where can we actually volunteer? Where can we be of service to a dignified end for these folks who are perishing of AIDS? And Casey House was the solution. It was a Victorian home that had been converted. It, it felt like a home. Every room had these mantles and these sort of um, decorative fireplaces. The, the whole intent was, how do we provide a beautiful end? You know, and, um, and my, they absolutely succeeded. They found a way to actually, you know, shift the story on HIV AIDS at that time. And, uh, and so those caregivers and, and nurses, those volunteers, I mean, every time we met with one of them, I'd always finish by saying, thank you for your heroic work. And I think maybe after this most recent pandemic, we understand what that means, that it indeed is heroism. As a director, I really believe in the power of encounter. And at the end of the, the day, I do think that what we're doing is we're affording an audience an encounter with a story, with human beings on stage, relationships, conflicts. And um, in service of encounter, I think the best thing you can do for an acting company, particularly a company that's going to be embodying something that happened and has been remembered and survived by people who will be coming to the show, put them in encounter with that reality. And so we spoke to hospice nurses. We had uh, Dr. Robinson, Greg Robinson, who is uh, specializes in HIV AIDS, spoke to us as a group. Uh, we did a visit to Casey House and got to actually see their new facility. Um, they're no longer in the house that's represented in the play. They're just across the street from it in a gorgeous, gorgeous facility by the same architect as the Tom Patterson Theater, if you can believe it. Um, and so we had our actors experience the values of Casey House in motion. How do they deal with clients now? What sort of considerations have they put into their spaces that we could carry into our play? We met with elders that lost almost all of their friends to AIDS. We met with some of the original bereavement team members. So these were volunteers that in the early days of Casey House were helping those lovers, those family members that lost someone, helping them through that grief. And then we met with Anne Allen. Anne Allen is a director, uh, ran the Charlottetown Festival for 10 years. Anne Allen was Princess Diana's private dance teacher from 1981 to 1988. So she knew Diana all through those early years. And Anne Allen came into our rehearsal hall, met with us, and then at the end of that session passed around a handwritten card that she had received from Diana. So there we were making an encounter, having an encounter with Diana's penmanship, her humor. Um, you know, so you what you do is, I feel as a director, you know, actors are gorgeous, gorgeous sponges. They're, they're looking to make meaning of the characters they're portraying, the relationships they're conveying, the story that they're uh, advancing with an audience. They're, they want as much information as possible to create you know, an authentic portrait. 
Uh, and so I tried to, as a director, give them as many access points as possible. We had a Casey and uh, Diana library, a digital library where we had books, links to videos, um, anything to uh, equip the imagination. And then in my particular practice as a director, I really think alongside the imagination, we have to activate the conscience, you know, and that's the ethical piece for me around telling a story like this or any story, frankly, how do we do right? How do we do justice by those that we're portraying and representing? And so it was a great, great privilege to have the Casey House folks come to one of our previews just a few days ago. We had a number of original volunteers there. Jane Darville, the CEO uh, at the time of Diana's visit was there. Um, and to just share the play back to its community of origin. I, I cannot tell you what that feels like. It's it's beyond a privilege. It's uh, on the one hand, it's a little bit terrifying because you go, have we done right? Have we done justice? And then on the other, you go, this is why we do this work. We do it because it's consequential. Um, I had moderated a talk back after that showing. And one of the things I said is I'm not altogether convinced that theater can change the world. I don't know. You know, I think, I don't know that we know in the moment of making it, whether or not it can change the world. But what I do know to be true, and I feel so confident about, is it can reflect the world back to those that have either lived that experience, had that feeling, wondered that question. And that act of reflecting back is deeply consequential. It's absolutely the reason why we should do this, why this art form should persist, why it ought to survive, why it has survived for so many thousands of years. So I relish the extent to which we were able to reflect Casey House back to its community. And I hope they felt the love that we have for that place, for its heroism, for the way it challenged stigma, for the way it changed the world. You know, they were thanking us. When we went to go visit Casey House, they kept thanking us. Thank you so much for coming. It was so great that you Stratford folks came to, to visit us. And all we could say was, are you nuts? <laughs> We should, we, we, not only we should be thanking you, we are thanking you. You've done the heroic work, Casey House, and we're just trying to reflect that back. I will offer in that moderated talk back, and I've told this story before, but, you know, there were a few things that happened. First of all, at the top of the show, there was a man sitting in a row in front of me, and he looked over, I had a notebook out, because the directors during previews are always taking notes, you know, uh, I picked this up. I, I always take notes, but I'm reminded of Martha Henry, who was a mentor, and uh, I miss her deeply. I wish she could see this show. But Martha always took copious, copious notes during run-throughs. And uh, in such a beautiful cursive, it, it puts me to shame because my notebook is usually um, a scramble of words and ideas. But I had my note notebook out, and a gentleman in the row in front of me said, are you involved with this show? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, I was there that day and I was like, well, well then this is for you. I said, he said, can I show you a picture? I said, sure. And he produced a white envelope and from it was this photo of him 31 and a half years ago meeting Princess Diana, right? It's lived experience. It's all those layers of, you know, it's time travel. Theater is about time travel. But the story I wanted to, to offer is in that talk back that we did with that community at the end of that preview, a woman put up her hand. She, I think, I hesitate to guess her age, but maybe in her 50s. And she said, I was there that day. I thought, oh, that's 
that's amazing. And she said, my dad was dying at Casey House. So I was there when he met Diana. And if that wasn't enough, she then gestures to three young people sitting next to her. And she says, these are my kids. And I brought them to the theater today because I want them to understand their grandfather a little bit better and his story. And I thought, again, if there's any doubt in our minds, why do we do this tough, tough art form that takes so much out of us that, you know, we, we, we get into these pressure cookers, creating these shows, and then they last for a few weeks and then poof, right? Like they just, they become memory. But then you realize that uh, there are folks in that audience that are making deep, deep connections and have access points across time and space that would otherwise not be afforded to them or their loved ones. And so to see these three young people, two of their partners were there. So it's this little row of five young people who suddenly got to experience that day, albeit in a play, but got to experience that day in such a way that, you know, defies a newspaper article, defies even a documentary. It's like the lived experience of breathing the same air in the theater with this extraordinary moment in history. Very early in the conceiving of how Casey and Diana as a play could work at the studio, I had asked about creating a reflection space. Uh, this has happened before at the festival. Uh, it happens in theaters across the country. It's in increasingly in, in use as a way of kind of building a, I wouldn't call it a buffer. It's, it's just helping folks move from the intensity of the experience, you know, out of the theater, back into their cars, you know, for, for many folks back onto the highway. And how do you do that after you've had a meaningful experience? And so we got working with Casey House and um, the festival and Casey House collaborated on this adjacent space. Uh, you can enter it through the lobby, but also uh, if it's nice out and it has been beautiful out lately in Stratford, you can access it from outside. And what it is, is uh, a space where we have hung quilts. Uh, these are deeply, deeply meaningful quilts. They date back to the earliest days of Casey House. And on these quilts are stitched or embroidered the names of those lost in any given year at Casey House. And this space is absolutely for the audience to observe a moment of silence, to memorialize a friend. We have a whole wall where people are writing down the names of folks they've lost, be it, you know, due to AIDS or other causes. And then we've got a facilitated listening circle after each show. And we've been hearing incredible things about people who, you know, having seen the show, sit in that circle. And you can just listen. You don't have to speak. But some people do choose to offer their stories. And uh, again, if there's any doubt, if there's any doubt that what we do on our stages intersect with people's lives and memories and, you know, losses, it's been abundantly clear in this room and it's open at intermission. So if folks need a little breather in between the acts, but I, I really think at the end of the show, I even go in there sometimes just to decompress. And uh, what I'd invite people to do if they haven't been in that room is to just think about and experience the quality of sound. What does that room sound like? Because um, it's distinct. And I think the festival's done a beautiful, beautiful job with creating that space for people. I'm a very proud queer Canadian artist. I relish any opportunity I can to explore my queer history, my LGBTQ plus history. And I came out in 
the late 90s. And so uh, along with my generation of queer people, we came out into a very hollowed out community. We had lost so many prospective mentors, elders, colleagues uh, to AIDS. And so I, again, relish any opportunity I can in my practice as an artist to build a bridge to that time, uh, build a bridge over that chasm, that loss. Um, I think so many people who have survived that era live with forms of PTSD. I think that would be perfectly understandable. It was a kind of wartime where people were disappearing. People were uh, perishing to this, at first, very mysterious illness, and then for a very long time, an unsolvable illness. And um, those folks that have survived, lovers, family, friends, um, they're coming to this show. They're in the room with us. This is living history. This is living memory. And so I'd say when I'm watching the show, I'm very aware of the concentric circles around the story. Of course, there is our character. We have our characters. We've got Thomas and Andre. We've got Marjorie Vera. We've got Princess Diana. We've got Pauline. Um, but they become a kind of gateway into a much larger human story, which is for me about HIV AIDS and particularly the social death that HIV AIDS um, provoked just by virtue of how much stigma there was uh, towards those who were being infected, predominantly queer people. So I feel supercharged when I'm at the show. I feel like I'm holding the story, but I'm also holding these layers of community, these layers of lived experience that uh, I know are in the space. You can feel it, you know? So um, that's part of it. That's part of it. I'll also add that I think we are living in really fraught times, really, there's, these are divisive times. We're very polarized. I think we've come out of this pandemic, if we can even say we've come out of it. This pandemic era has left us quite fractured. Um, there's something about Casey and Diana as an offering where kindness is actually the heartbeat, the engine of the play. I think there's something of that that is profoundly cathartic for people. I think this realization that we are still capable of great compassion, great connection across difference, that we are able to reauthor what may feel like a tragic ending. And in fact, explore what it means to have beautiful endings, even in very complex times. And so I, I think that's part of people's emotional experience is realizing that we do have a better self and that we are indeed connected in ways that perhaps we've forgotten about or it's been worn away by these last few years. Um, I do think, if I may, the, the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s is in and of itself worth putting on stage. I don't think of the, the, as AIDS as a metaphor for, you know, for, for uh, you know, our consumption. I do think of it as something we, we ought to honor. We need to honor those that passed and we need to honor those ancestors and also those heroic caregivers who at that time were really breaking boundaries by making physical contact with an AIDS patient. So I, I think we want to honor, but I also want the audience to draw their own connections. Um, as, as recent as this 
this pandemic we've just been through, I, I know there are reverberations. There is this PTSD. And I suppose that's the shadow side of it, right? Is that there is this trauma that people are trying to metabolize. I don't even know to this date, are we really actually doing the work of metabolizing this pandemic? I'm not so sure. You know, I think we are quite fractured. I think we are quite broken and we are struggling. And I'm not sure that we're talking enough about that. And I can't help but feel that the play is kind of an invitation to go, let's talk about it. Let's be with this hard stuff. Let's be with the fact that for years now we have been grieving. You know, I think particularly, again, I, I alluded to the fact that I'm Ukrainian Canadian, but this past year and a bit since the full scale invasion, I've been in a deep state of grief, deep, deep grief and anger. And to be working on a show that is antidote, you know, to work on a piece of art that is antidote to that anger, to that grief, to that loss, um, that speaks directly to it. It's a gift for us as artists to be in this world, engaging with that. And as a director, I feel intensely lucky. And I can only hope, I can hope that that catches on with audiences that experience our story, that undergo our story of Casey and Diana.